Um, if you have your Bible, I encourage you just to open it back up to First John. Um, as I said, we're working through a series on hope um, because we are probably in a moment of time where we are in deep need of hope. Um, but 1 John's a funny book because you would think that one of the things that defines Christian people is hope. And, and John is writing a letter to another church and you would imagine that in this period of time where the church is severely persecuted, one of the things that they're going to need is hope. And yet this is a letter that has um, remarkably little hope in it explicitly. And what I mean by that is that hope, the word hope only appears in this, this whole book, this whole letter once, it appears in, chapter, in, in verse 3, um, where it says that all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And the rest of the book focuses around the idea that we have hope in God and it fills out our understanding of God, but it never really mentions hope explicitly. And it fills out the idea of what we should do when we encounter this God. And I think the reason that there is that ambiguity there in John is that I think so often whenever we talk about hope, we talk about it in a futuristic sort of way. And that, that's what this passage alludes to. Whenever it talks about hope, it does talk about it something far off in the future when it says that it has not been made known to us yet, but we will know that whenever Christ appears, we shall be like him. There's an idea that whenever Christ returns, that we will be made pure as he is pure. We will be made glorious as he is glorious and covered in his robe of righteousness. But that's very far off. And to John's audience, as they are seeing the world go to ruin around them, they need hope now, not for when they die, not for whenever Christ returns in glory. They need hope now. And I think that's why John's first letter is punctuated continually with the love of God. Constantly he is talking about love. Constantly he is focusing in on the Father's will to love people. And it's interesting that I'm sure that many of our favorite verses come from this, this book, that God is love or we love because he first loved us. There's so much speaking of God's love and the reason that John is doing that is because whenever people need hope now, not for some far off distant day, we need to be reminded that God's love is being manifested to us right here, right now, even when it doesn't feel very much like it. He wants to emphasize to his audience, to the letter, in this letter, there is a reality to God's love in the here and now, not just pie in the sky when they die. And he does that, and this, you know, if you were gonna really do a series through 1 John, um, like you could spend years on it, as each verse is dripping, oozing with meaning. And I hope as we come to look at it this evening, we'll see that. Because John is, has such a huge view of God that he's trying to get across to his audience that says, once you get this idea of God and how much he loves you, 
that changes right now in a very special way, in a very real way. And in this very first verse in the chapter, in, in, in chapter one, in verse three, in chapter, or verse one in chapter three, he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And there, there's no... Um, there's no exclamation mark there in the original. It just continues on. It's just two words that says, um, and you are, or in the NIV it says, and that is what we are. And then that single verse in some ways encapsulates the entire Christian message because that a single verse encapsulates our Trinity. Our God in all of his fullness. And it speaks of God's fullness in a way that it, it, it gives us a peek behind the curtain into the deep mysteries of God in and of himself. And I think whenever we hear that word Trinity, we're probably quite scared in some ways because whenever we think of the Trinity, we begin to think, okay, it's something that's three and one, but we can't think of ways for it to be three and one. And we tie ourselves up in knots trying to find ways to articulate it and try and find ways to describe what is meant to be indescribable, incomprehensible, unfathomable, a God who is Trinity. And I think one of the simplest things we can do to help us get a, a more sure and more concrete view of the love of God and a more sure and concrete view of the nature of God as a triune God, as a trinity, is that we begin to see how God works through the gospel to change people like us. And that's what we see in this very first verse. And I think we can so often go wrong here because I think we're probably all very good at talking about what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. We're all probably very good at talking about the idea that Jesus has died for us on the cross. Um, we're maybe fairly familiar with the idea of Jesus interceding for us as our high priest. But if we focus too much on Jesus and neglect the Father and the, and the Spirit, what, what ends up is we end up having a view of the gospel that is truncated in some way and skewed because we begin to see the Father as this tyrant who punishes Jesus, who's the one dying on, our, on the cross for us. And we miss part of the picture. Or, and I must confess, this was me growing up, we can sometimes think about the gospel and just think about God as quite a nice, abstract deity somewhere up in the sky who has wound up all of earth and is just letting things run out. And we do that neglecting the Son and the Spirit that gives God that personal dimension where we can come to know him in a very real and very concrete and very certain way. Or, and this is probably what's very popular in our culture at the minute, we can think about God as just being a spirit, an ethereal spirit about which we can know ver not know very much about. And it's all lovely and mystical and ritualistic, but there's no person there. And whenever things get really hard, you need something more concrete to hang your hat on than mere mysticism. And so John, to give the richness of all the Christian hope he has begins to describe what God does as Trinity. And, and, and I'm just gonna, this evening, we're just gonna look at Father Son, and, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit in a very simple way and look at how their actions and what they do are talked about in this verse. So if you look down, the, the, first, the first word of this chapter is wonderful because it is just the word see or, or some of your translations might just say, look. Behold, 
What John is about to tell us is something that is so sweet and so enriching to us. For he says, see, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. When do you think you first felt the love of the Father? I imagine for many of us, we might say whenever we were first converted, we might herald our our mind back to um, the the mission that we were converted at or um, that moment where we we first came to a, a saving and understanding faith in Jesus. Or we might begin to say, well, maybe when we had baptism in Ballandary this morning, we might say, well, you know, I was shown the love of God in my baptism because um, I can look back and see the way that God's love expressed through his church and they, tried, they sang blessing over me and they prayed for me and they showed God's love in that way. But really God's love for you starts be, before the dawn of time. Whenever God begins to give of himself, for you. God the Father is not divorced from anything that's going on with Jesus, quite the contrary, because God is in the business of giving. God the Father is defined intrinsically in his being by the nature of giving of himself. And that is what it means to have a God who is love. A God who in his very being, the very way we would want to describe the Father against the Son and the Spirit is that he gives of himself. And and whenever we want to define love, I think we need to be really careful here in how we define love because we live in a culture where we have a very twisted view of love and we probably all agree with that. And you know we're a Presbyterian church and so um, we believe in things like total depravity, uh, and total depravity is one of those big, scary things that sounds that makes it sound as if we believe everybody out there is a Disney villain, um, you know, sitting with a big twizzly mustache, cackling, waiting to do something evil. And that's not what total depravity means. Total depravity is not that you are all um, really Disney villains, but rather it means that every your best thoughts and your best intentions, no matter how holy, are still tainted by sin in some way. And so even whenever you love your family and whenever you love um, the people in your church, there is a little bit of sin that taints that and ruins that. So every form of love that we have in a little way is tainted. And you can see this so obviously, um, sometimes even in just the way that this can work itself out in relationships, where we love somebody, but we need to get something out of them in a way that's unhelpful. We look to them for to give them them our meaning and our purpose in a way that they can't. We can sometimes use our our love and our relationships in a way that it is manipulative, where we can say, oh, I I need you so much, and and yet we'll treat somebody as if they're disposable. Because total depravity and the nature of ourselves and the nature of sin doesn't mean that we're we're inherently Disney villain-esque evil people always trying to, to foil God's plans. But what often it means is that even our best and highest and good thoughts are tainted and corrupted in, by sin in every way so that it will lead us to the wrong place. And that's what we see in the world around us. We see a, a society that loves the idea of love. Love is such an easy topic to talk about in, in, the, uh, in the public square at the minute because who hates love? 
What's wrong with love? How could we ever disagree with love? But yet we begin to see how it manifests itself in ways that are so unhelpful and harmful. Love that is seen as as just a one-night stand. Love that is seen as merely something that is a well-wishing for everybody as long as you don't come too close. Um, There's a French philosopher called Rousseau and he had an idea called the social contract. And often we've imbibed this view of love into our culture and that is that whenever we love somebody, we love them as if it was a contract. And, And this is what he was driving at. And many of our relationships will function like this. We will stay in that relationship as long as what we need to get out of it is there. So even in my marriage with Zoe, and I love Zoe very much, but there's a limit to my love for her in that if Zoe begins putting ground glass in my food, our relationship will wane slightly. Um, There's a limit to my love. I have friendships where I will love them, but if, you know, they are mean to me and they are cruel to me and they uh, call me names and they swear at me, I'm not going to maintain that friendship very long. Why? Because we have this idea of love that requires that we need to get something back. We need to get a little bit of the relationship back. We need to get a little bit of the love back. We are incapable of showing love the way God the Father shows love. And the reason we are incapable of showing love the way God the Father shows love and the, way, the reason his love is so different from ours is that whenever we love, we need something back. But have you ever thought what it would mean to love as God? God who, in in one of our confessions uh, for the, the church, says that a God that has all of life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. Have you ever thought what it means for God to love you? And God does not need your love back in any way, shape, or form. He is perfectly content and whole and satisfied in and of himself. He is not needing the reciprocal relationship that we often need whenever we love somebody. But our God is a God who gives in and of himself in a way where he can love you in a way that is without limit and without condition because he doesn't need to prove anything to himself or change anything in himself. He loves in an unconditional and unlimited way. Um, If you've been following along with William's devotionals through um, Gentle and Lowly, um, it's a book that talks about the heart of Christ for sinners. But, you know, in some ways, the heart of Christ for sinners is the heart of God the Father for sinners because they both have the same will. And, and so I want to read a wee bit from this that I think sums it up, but I'm going to change the wording um, from Dean Ortland's book. And instead of saying Jesus, I'm just going to say the Father, because I think that just communicates this so well. When it says, the Father does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. The fa- Father continued to love despite our betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. The Father loved through the sons for sacredness. We love up to a limit. The Father loves up to an end. The Father's love is a love for you that has no limit, has no bounds, and has no get-out clause. It is an internal, incomprehensible love. 
And the primary way the Father expresses his love for you is by giving, giving. The Father expresses his love by giving. That's why we love John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, gave his one and only Son. God is not concerned about expressing his love to you in a way that is mushy or sentimental or is, can be summed up in a Hallmark card. God is not going to give you a, a bunch of roses which, though lovely and nice and decorative, will die in a few weeks' time. I'm so sorry I've ruined all of those bouquets you've maybe bought for your wives over the years. But God's love is shown in a concrete way and in an absolute way. A God who enters in into space and time and changes the dynamic of how all of us relate to him. Why? Because he loves and he gives. And he loves to give and he gives because he loves because that's what the Father does with an eternal love, a love external to anything that you could do or say and a love that is real and concrete. And that is why we get to this wonderful, wonderful statement that we see. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Children of God, sons of God, heirs of God. And this is where we begin to see what, what God's giving meant, because when he gives of his son, he gives the son. And the son's role and the, the, the son's job is in a sense to ensure that that title, son, can be given over to us, that, that title, child of God, can be used as a way to identify us. So he becomes flesh as we are flesh. He enters into a human body just like ours. And he lives a life with all the hardship that our lives are filled with. That he fulfills the law in a way that we never could. He performs all the right sacrifices. He follows all the cleanliest laws. He eats everything that he, should, that he has to eat and avoids the things that he shouldn't eat. And he perfects the law on our behalf. He, he as we sang and read this morning in the creed, he descends to the dead, to the depths of the human existence of death so that there is not a height, a, a high nor a low of the human existence that Christ has not experienced or has not redeemed in some way. And he ascends finally to the right hand of the Father where he is seated there bodily as you and I may be seated here today. And he is interceding and praying for you without end and without ceasing, hour after hour, day after day, bringing us before his Father and saying, look at those with whom you have given me. As the Son and the Father delight seeing the plan of revelation unfold, that we might be called children of God. Children of God is a title that we can only bear if we are in the Son, because ultimately the sonship that we get to share in, that heirship that we get to draw on, is not one that is given to everybody, it's one that's only found in Jesus. The sonship we share in is the sonship of Jesus. Have you ever thought that being a child of God is like a protected title? Um, it's a protected title and that not everybody gets it. And there's a reason for that. Um, for example, 
you know, if I took off my, my tie and my jacket and walked into a hospital and stole a yellow lanyard, I could pretend to be a doctor and I'd call myself Dr. James. And that would be grand. I could probably blag my way through a few, um, a few appointments and say, sure, take some paracetamol and have a lie down and you'll be fine. But if somebody came up to me with a real problem, am I going to be any good as a doctor? No. Why? Because we protect that title doctor because it's special. It means something important and it means something valuable. And so we protect it and say the only way you get it is if you give up having a social life for five years and, and you just have to sit through all these exams and you have to go through all this process and whenever you come out the end, you're going to have to pay to do more and more exams at the end just so you can stay a doctor. It's a protected title. It's something that's important. And so we value it. The same with the title of being a child of God. It's something that is important. You becoming a child of God is a title so important that the Son of God, the Son of God died so that you could be called it. It is the most important title that you could bear, that you are a child of God. And it is not a title that we throw out all over the show, but it is a title that God bestows in a royal and magisterial way where he says, you are my children and I will give all of heaven and earth into your hands. It's a title that costs a great deal, but it's a title that is so worth having and so rich. And that is what it means whenever we say that we're adopted into God's family. Um, I like reading old things, and so I've got another quote that I want to read this evening. It's from the Westminster Longer Catechism, which um, is longer than the shorter catechism, but that's the only way I can know how to describe it. But it, it asks the question of what is adoption? What is adoption? And it says that adoption is an act of free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, where all of those that are justified are received into the number of his children and have his name put upon them. And the spirit of the Son is given to them, and they are under his fatherly care. And the dispensations admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs, fellow heirs, equal heirs, with Christ in glory. That is what your title as a child of God gets you. The fatherly care, the co-heir with Christ. This is a rich blessing. And it's one that is so rich, the Son of God thought it was worth dying for. And then finally, we see in this little bit that's tagged on the end, we see how the spirit works when it says, and that is what we are, and that is what we are. You may not feel very much like a child of God, and I think that's often because we, we neglect how we talk about the Holy Spirit a lot of the time. Um, often whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, we have a very limited way of talking about him. We can often say that he's the silent member of the Trinity, and we kind of dismiss his importance when we say that. Or a criticism that's largely, largely leveled at Presbyterians is that we believe not in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. Um, and I think that misses 
the sheer importance that we place on the Holy Spirit in the day-to-day life. And I think often whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, the way we want to talk about the Holy Spirit is mainly in supernatural gifts in some way, shape, or form, or in, in the way that we feel emotionally at certain events and on certain times. And I think we do a grave disservice to the hope we have as Christians if we limit our discussions to the Spirit about that. Those are important discussions, don't get me wrong, but they are secondary, secondary to what the Spirit does within you, no matter what kind of Christian you are, no matter what denomination you hold to, and no matter how high or how low your hands are during worship. Because whenever we see the Spirit at work, what the Spirit is doing is He is applying those benefits of sonship directly to you right now. That is why John can say that he doesn't feel just content to say that we might be called children of God. He, he, he says, and that is what you are. That is what you are because there is a reality going on inside you right now. No matter how bright you feel or no matter how depressed you feel, no matter how spiritual you feel right now, there is a reality going on inside you to the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is a really simple work. Don't get me wrong, but yet it is so simple and so basic, we can forget to marvel at the wonder of it. That the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son for one sole purpose of transforming you and changing you and making those truths that he has revealed through his word known to you and to you specifically. So what the Spirit does is that the Spirit firstly begins to work in us in the moment of our conversion. The Spirit, in a sense, removes the scales away from our eyes so that we are able to see things in our lives that we could never have seen before. That's why there was this moment at some stage where you realized, I'm a lot more sinful than I I thought I was. I'm not as good a person as I thought I was. Why? Because the Spirit has removed the things in the scales of your eyes that prevented you from seeing. The Spirit is like a light that reveals our true selves. Um, There was a a, a Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote a, a sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light on the Role of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he says that sin always carries a degree of darkness with it. And the more it prevails, the more the dark, the more it darkens and deludes the mind. It is from hence that knowing whether there be any wicked way in us is a difficult thing. The difficulty in knowing if there's sin in us is not for all the want of light without us, not at all because the word of God is, not, is plain and the rulers are clear, but it's because of the darkness within inside us. There's a darkness within inside us that obscures us from seeing God and obscures us from seeing how sinful we really are. And the Holy Spirit is like a light bulb moment. The light goes on and suddenly all those parts that you wish were hidden are suddenly brought into view. And having seen that, we repent because we can't help but do anything else. And then the Spirit works in changing and transforming us. The Spirit, the Spirit is not like, um, it's not like a, a booster pack. I think sometimes we can talk about it in that way. We can sometimes talk about the Spirit as if um, it's like your shot of coffee in the morning to get you going out the door and to spur you on and to give you the energy you need to do. The, the Spirit's not like a, a, an energizing spiritual force. But rather what the Holy Spirit does is it removes the sin from you 
in a way that lets you see things as they truly are. And it, it plants within you habits and desires that you could never have without his will and without his, his willing. So that may have looked for you that there was a stage whenever going to church was um, the most painful way you could think to spend a Sunday morning. And then suddenly you begun to feel, well, you know what, actually, I have this desire and I have this urge to want to go to church or to want to read the Bible or to want to pray or to want to just find out more about God. And that's the spirit at work. And you know, it doesn't look very flashy from the outside. It, it doesn't look very impressive. There's no fireworks. There's no great blinding light in the sky most of the time. There's no angelic choir surrounding you the majority of the time. You know, if there was, tell me. I think it'd be an interesting story. But the spirit does a very simple work, but it does a no, a no less miraculous work. Because as Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Not one of us could ever say that Jesus is our King if we didn't have the Spirit working within us and changing us. And it's that Spirit that takes the wonderful will of the Father to love you and to give his Son for you and takes the wonderful sonship of the Son with all of its blessings and with all of the privileges bound up in that, and it imprints them upon your heart in a way that cannot be removed and cannot be stripped from you, no matter what life throws at you. And that's why we read it in Romans 8, 15, that you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit is the mark upon you that you cannot move, remove no matter how much you scrub that marks you out as a child of God and grants you every spiritual blessing that you could ever imagine. And this is the fullness of the hope that John talks about. It's something that isn't just far off pie in the sky stuff. It changes here and now because it brings the God of all eternity to bear in your life and in you right now. And that is an amazing hope to have. And let's rejoice in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good things you give us, for the blessings you give us, for the sonship you give us, for the adoption you give us, for the spirit you give us. Father who gives would we delight in you. We pray this in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.